0: This is episode 1.9 Paranoia and Treachery. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, and I really didn't think about how many of these I was going to have to write when I started doing this bit.
1: And I'm Nina, anime fan and armchair academic.
0: So we've been doing this for almost two months now. I am a little surprised by how well it's going.
1: A big thank you to all of our current listeners. We appreciate your support in this new crazy thing we're doing.
0: Thank you for sticking with us through the early episodes before we learned how to do a podcast and I figured (laughs) out how to edit audio. If you're enjoying what we do and you'd like to support us and help us reach more listeners, we would really appreciate it if you would write us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Facebook or all of them.
1: Cut pastes. Just put the review everywhere.
0: And if you have anime or Gundam or Japanese history loving friends that you think might be interested in the podcast, please share it with them. The last couple of episodes, we've gone back and forth between episodes that are a little darker and deal a little bit more with Amuro's emotions and episodes that are a bit more focused on battles and adventures and trickery. This episode brings us back to Amro.
1: And with that, episode 1.9 can begin.
0: The White Base is running low on everything. There's little food left. Little enough that Kai accuses the cook of hoarding, while the orphans steal food out of the kitchens. They're running low on ammunition, too, with barely enough left for one more engagement. When a communique from HQ arrives at last, it offers only momentary hope. It is merely an order to break through the Zeon encirclement and escape to the ocean. Lieutenant Reed snaps that the generals have no idea what's going on in the field. He even suggests abandoning the white base. Amuro's worse. He hasn't had a decent night's sleep since the white base left Side 7, and he's still not eating. He spends all his time in his bunk just staring at the ceiling. He doesn't feel like himself. He's getting paranoid. He snaps at Frau, his best friend, to just leave him alone. Later, he drags himself down to the mess, but there Amuro sees one of the refugees, an old man, steal food off the plate of a child. Overcome by guilt and shame that he's eating full meals while everyone else gets by on crumbs, Amuro gives his own meal to the child. Frau chides him to eat, but Amuro storms out. Zeon attacks, and over Char's objections, Garma sorties personally in his own dop fighter, determined to win back his honor after his recent string of defeats. As the Zeon squadrons approach, the other pilots, Kai, Hayato, and Ryu, deploy the gun cannon and gun tank. Frau tries to convince Amuro to join the battle, but he refuses. She calls Bright in. Amuro demands to know why Bright fights, but the acting captain tells him there's no time for philosophy. Amuro retorts that Bright should just go pilot the gun to himself, and Bright snaps that he would if he could. Amuro argues that he shouldn't have to fight just because he can, and Bright has had enough. He slaps Amuro, berates him, shames him, tells him to go ahead and throw his tantrum if it will make him feel better. But nothing gets through. As Bright struggles with Amuro, Kai and the others struggle to defend the white base, but they are outmatched. Now Frau volunteers to pilot the Gundam, if Amuro will just give her the manual. Perhaps this gets through to him, but it's only after Bright mentions Char that Amuro emerges from his torpor. Char, he asks. Then, pounding his fist into a bulkhead, he curses. Damn that, Char. At last, Amuro deploys. Relying on the Gundam's jump jets, Amuro leaps through the air, engaging the strafing fighters in close combat, even kicking one apart before hacking a wing off of Garma's dop with his beam saber. Pursued by the leaping Gundam, Garma retreats, luring the rash Amuro into the Gao's firing range. He calls for a barrage to destroy the Gundam once and for all, but his frantic orders go unheard. Back on the Gao, Char has sabotaged the comm circuit. Amuro might have pursued Garma to the ends of the Earth, but in the mountains he encounters a lone Federation transport and its commander, Lieutenant Matilda Ajan, carrying the supplies the White Base desperately needs. She has come on a mission of aid at the personal request of the Federation's General Revel, and she will take the most injured of the refugees with her when she goes, leaving the White Base refreshed and as ready to fight as it has been since Side 7. Even Amuro, love-struck on his first sight of the lieutenant, seems somewhat restored. I think this might end up being a short episode.
1: Yeah, I think so too.
0: It's a tighter story than a lot of the episodes have had so far. There's really only three sort of things happening. There's Amaro having his breakdown. There's the Shar Garma double cross. Single cross? How many crosses are happening there? I have no response. Do you have no opinion on, I have no response. You have no opinion on the number of crosses that are going on?
1: No. Okay. <laughs> you said that like you're waiting for me to say something funny, and I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I got nothing. <laughs>
0: All right, so we've got Amara having his breakdown, we have the Shar double-cross, and then we have the total collapse of the White Base. Like, everybody on the White Base is having some kind of breakdown.
1: I didn't get that impression at all.
0: you got old people stealing from kids, you've got Kai accusing the cook of hoarding food, you've got Bright slapping Amara around.
1: But you also have... Ryu, Jose, and Hayato behaving like their normal selves. You also have Lieutenant Reed being surprisingly calm under the circumstances.
0: But suggesting that they abandon the white base.
1: Okay, we're coming at this all circular. <laughs> so the opening of this episode basically shows us that conditions in the white base are bad. Amro is keeping to himself. He is even more disconnected than he was before. He's starting to become paranoid from lack of sleep, or is he? He suggests the reason the Federation hasn't helped them, the reason it doesn't seem as if anybody cares what happens to the White Base, is because they're using the White Base as a distraction. <laughs> Garma chasing the White Base all over Creation is actually helping the Federation, until so they have no reason to stop that from happening. We know there are food shortages because otherwise, why would Kai be complaining that some people are getting bigger shares and other people not?
0: And A couple of episodes ago, Kai pointed out that keeping the refugees on meant running out of food. There wasn't enough food to feed everybody.
1: Well, and when Amaro finally does show up to eat, he feels too guilty about his own portions and what the lack of food is doing to the refugees when he sees the the older man take food from the plate of a young child surreptitiously, that he can't do it. He can't eat his own meal because he feels too guilty at the preferential treatment he gets, even while resenting the fact that he's in that position at all. Part of Kai's resentment with the kitchen staff is not just that he's getting to eat less. It's this sense that, wait, I'm one of the fighters now. I'm helping and I'm still a second class citizen with you people.
0: Kai appears to be going about regular duties on the white base while Amuro is sulking in his bunk. So if people's rations are being assigned according to their duties, then it feels like Kai should at least be eating as much as Amuro.
1: Bright hitting Amuro did not actually feel out of character for me. As you pointed out, he hit Kai, and Kai has been a much more reasonable person ever since.
0: That's true. I do think it's a sign of tension that Bright is under a lot of stress.
1: It also gives us a point of fundamental difference between Bright and Amuro. Bright is a career soldier. Bright signed up for this. Bright has a strong sense of duty to the Federation. Amuro doesn't have any of that. He got in the Gundam, right? He got in the Gundam in a moment of fear, panic, whatever. And because of that moment, he's been stuck with it ever since.
0: Though the degree to which he's stuck with it, it varies a little bit depending on his mood. There are clearly times when he wants to be in the Gundam, and he's not willing to give it up for anybody else, even if he does taunt Bright a little bit.
1: Poor Bright. I'd pilot it if I could, you little jerk.
0: <laughs> well, Frau does basically the same thing.
1: And Frau goes a step further, In confronting him with how can he not be proud of what he's done for them so far? If all he can think of after everything that's happened is how put upon he feels, then she's ashamed of him.
0: And in that moment, she doesn't say it, but I get a sense that Frau is thinking, I bring meals to people and I'm proud of that. And you save all of us every day and you can't be proud of that?
1: I would like to point out, when we talk about Amaro sulking, we are reflecting the sentiments of the show, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think Amuro is depressed and sleep-deprived, and like we talked about last time, there are real mental health consequences to battle fatigue, which the crew clearly do not understand or have much sympathy for. I feel a lot of sympathy for Amuro. What I wanted to happen in this episode, and which didn't happen, was for everyone else to be able to manage without him, frankly. (laughs) What I wanted was to see everybody else out there fighting, and it was hard and it was dangerous, but that they didn't have to have Amuro in the Gundam, that this one person and this one machine were not so overwhelmingly important that it's them or bust. Ryu Jose tries to do that. Ryu says to Bright, we depend on Amuro too much. He needs a rest. He's exhausted. Let me and Hayato go out. But the show seems to be leaning towards the, no, only our hero can save the day.
0: I don't think so. There have been a couple of episodes where Amaro alone couldn't have done it. I think the show takes the position that the white base is now so hard pressed that it requires the full commitment of everybody. Nothing motivates Amuro like Shar.
1: Right. We see... (laughs) Bright hits Amro. Bright shames Amro about his duty. Neither of these things seem to work as motivation. Frauba, Fraubo. Well, she tries to be gentle first, right?
0: What do you need? How can I help?
1: Right, we're all doing our bit. I know it's hard, and then everybody loses patience.
0: Frau asks Amro where he's keeping Manuel, so that she can go out in the Gundam herself. Right,
1: we have the one-two punch of Frabo saying both, "If you won't do it, then I will," and "I'm ashamed of you." And Brights, I don't know if he did this on purpose, but very clever. I thought you could be as good as Char. What a waste.
0: And the way Amro responds, it's not even clear that he heard the rest of that sentence. He just perks up immediately and goes, Char?
1: And we know he has a fixation. We've seen it in a few episodes where when he knows the Red Comet is out and fighting, he fights longer than he should have. He takes risks that he shouldn't take.
0: If he can, he focuses on Char, even when there are other targets on the field, which is perhaps why the assistance from Kai and Hayato and Ryu has become so necessary, because if there are other Xeon forces supporting Char, is going to focus on Char, and he needs help watching his back.
1: It becomes very clear that what motivates Amaro are these individual relationships, not some big abstract concept or even the idea of all these nameless, faceless people who he doesn't really know that he's protecting. It's about fra. It's about bright. It's about char. That is what's able to get him past the exhaustion that he's been feeling. Also, they really need a medical officer. I feel like if your fighter pilot tells you they haven't been able to sleep for days, maybe a week, you probably just give them some sleeping pills.
0: Well, Frau suggests he goes and talks to Sayla, who it turns out was a medical student.
1: And his response is, leave me alone. But obviously, it doesn't matter what he says. She should go to Selah, and Sayla will order him to take them, and he'll do it, because everyone listens to Sayla.
0: Your genre savvy is showing. <laughs>
1: Also, just from a military perspective, obviously, he's not really following orders right now. But he has been more receptive to Sela in the past. And Sela seems to know what to say to him to get through to him a lot of the time. Although we see that this is something that uh, doesn't just work on Amaro. She's chatting with Kai. And Kai notices, I think, more than Amaro does that he's being manipulated, but he doesn't mind it. So, right. oh, sela san you always know just what to say. <laughs>
0: I think in the third episode, the first time that Kai goes out in the gun tank, he tries to flirt with Sela via the intercom, and she shuts him down completely. So this must be a nice change for him.
1: It's also possible she just respects him more now that he's pulling his weight, you know. Yeah, we have Bright's great line, We don't have time for philosophy.
0: He busts into Amuro's room, and Amuro asks him, Why are you fighting, Bright? Bright's taken aback for a second and then says, we don't have time for philosophy. We need to fight.
1: Though in my mind, this makes an interesting contrast with the moment between Bright and Lieutenant Reed. We have Amaro suggesting, well, what's the reason? Why are we fighting? And from Bright, we think maybe it's about survival. But we know it can't just be about that because Lieutenant Reed points out to him, if this is just about surviving, it's easy. Abandon the white base. The white base is what Zeon want. If we left the white base, we could probably get away but that isn't actually what Bright wants. Bright's primary concern is not survival. It's his duty to the Federation. You disagree?
0: Well, this maybe goes back to the issue with the refugees some episodes ago where we talked about how they want to survive long enough to get their feet on the ground, whereas the bridge crew wants everyone to survive beyond that. And abandoning the white base means surviving now, but then they're on foot in Xion territory. How long do they survive at that point?
1: I think the idea would have been that they would go into the transport and into the various other vehicles and things, and they wouldn't be on foot. They'd be in all of the smaller like fighters and mobile suits and so on, and the civilians would be in the transport and they'd get somewhere. I'm not saying it's a great plan, but I don't think they would be on foot.
0: They would survive maybe another day, but beyond that, I think Bright is looking to long-term survival. Seriously, like old people stealing from kids.
1: That moment made me wonder, conceptually, the idea of a previous generation stealing from a young one is one that's been talked about a lot, pretty much ever since the last big financial crisis in 2008. This sense that an older generation did things and created laws and made political decisions in a way that benefits them to the detriment of coming generations- And I wonder (laughs) if there was any similar sense at the time the show was being created, because it's come up a few times, right? In a few different episodes, there is this sense of intergenerational conflict. There is a sense of older people placing their wants and needs over sometimes even the survival interest of younger people. (laughs) What was going on at the time that influenced that trend in the show
0: way way back in episode zero we talked a little bit about the environmental crises that developed in the 1970s there were a lot of them and they were pretty worldwide and if there's anything that makes you think of older generations stealing from younger generations environmental damage and environmental movements are pretty much top of the list for me so that's something we'll need to look into a little bit more
1: Speaking of Char, Char, he doesn't do very much in this episode, but it's a very pointed not doing very much.
0: Yes, he very actively doesn't do anything.
1: It's clear almost from the beginning, from their first interactions, that Shar and Garma are rivals. This extent of rivalry that we see in this episode is much further <laughs> than I expected. It always has seemed like Char wants Garma to fail. It hasn't to me. It seemed like Shar wanted Garma to get killed. That's what it seemed like this episode. He wants Garma to die.
0: We see Shar very obviously manipulating Garma at the end of this episode when Garma comes back and Garma is chiding Shar for not fighting, for not helping him out. And Shar says, oh, I did it for your pride. Your pride, of course. And Garma is so taken by this, especially when Char adds that Char had such confidence in his skills that Garma forgets all about scolding Char.
1: Oh, that was not my read on it at all. My read on it is that because they're in front of a bunch of other people, Mm. Garma can't admit weakness. He can't admit that he needed help. He can chastise Char for, oh, you should have done, you should have done. He can't admit that he needed help. So when Char says... Oh, I was sure you had it under control. He can't admit that he didn't.
0: Maybe. That's a good read. I think Garma does get some satisfaction out of being praised by the Red Comet, who he's looked up to all these years. But also, in that context, a lot of the things that Char has been saying to Garma over the last few episodes now take on a different light. Every time he's told Garma not to go out, it begins to seem like he's needling Garma. Like he's saying, no, no, you shouldn't go out, you're not good enough, no, I'll take care of it. Like he's driving Garma to take more and more risks.
1: Also, that sick burn at the start of the episode. I did wonder if some of Shara's vindictiveness was motivated by the discussion he has with Garma towards the very beginning. Garma is suiting up, getting ready to head out, and he says, you shouldn't be doing this. Which is true. He's the commander of a large ship. There's no reason he should be suiting up to go fly.
0: But Shara telling him he shouldn't is definitely encouraging him to do it.
1: And then we have the sick burn itself of, oh, I have to think of what my sister will think of all this. You don't have family. You don't understand.
0: Is it really a sick burn to be like, oh, you're an orphan?
1: It felt like one. It felt as if it were delivered like one. I'll say that.
0: Yeah. It did feel like Garma thought it was a sick burn.
1: Like, oh, you orphan. You can't possibly understand. I will be interested to see which of us, it seems, is more correct in our read on that relationship. I think from the beginning, they have both been very aware of the cat and mouse between them. In Garma Strikes, when, after the fact, Garma says to Char, oh, you didn't tell me how difficult that was going to be. He knows that Shar set him up. And Shar knows that he knows. And then they keep dancing around each other for episodes. <laughs> That's my impression, that they both know that they're plotting against each other. And finally, the Federation is here! Ba-ba-ba-ba! Sort of. We have an entirely unnecessary full body pan. Entirely unnecessary? Uh, Lieutenant Matilda. Honestly, in the uniform, they could have panned bright. Like, (laughs) it looks the same. It's very male gazy.
0: Yeah, when she walks away, every male member of the crew is- Looking at her. Well, they're starstruck in some kind of different way. Thank you, beautiful lady who brought us food. I think Ryu Jose is just sort of staring off into space.
1: Fra sticks her tongue out in jealousy.
0: Fra knows what's up.
1: So the show makes a point of saying, this is the first time Amuro has been starstruck in that way.
0: I believe By they a, used the phrase, this is the first time Amuro has experienced the scent of a woman, which is... Right. Meh.
1: Yeah, a bit. It may be less weird in Japanese, and they just translated it poorly. I
0: think it was less weird in the 70s, too.
1: <laughs> Probably. <laughs> But this sense that there is something different about the attraction you feel toward an adult person when you're a teen versus the attraction you feel toward a peer. Coming back to motivating Amaro, he seems so pleased when it's Lieutenant Matilda telling him, we need you to keep fighting. The Federation is in a bad way. Everything you can do to help. We're not going to take the ship from you she puts a hand on his shoulder, you're doing a great job. Thank you.
0: Tells him he might be psychic.
1: Yeah. He gets all bashful. Oh no, not, oh, me. Not, not me. Other neat things I noticed. If you're watching along, you may have wondered why the small children stole a bunch of tomatoes from the mess hall. I'm pretty sure these are meant to be persimmons and not tomatoes which would make more sense, that the kids would steal a sweet fruit to snack on and Amuro would just be like munching on it in his quarters.
0: Thank you for explaining what a persimmon is.
1: (laughs) A sweet fruit. It looks like an orange tomato, except when you cut it open, the flesh is dense all the way through. There's no watery seed part.
0: All right, that sounds like what Amuro was eating based on the way it looked and sounded when he bit into it.
1: Yep. Yeah, I had never seen a persimmon before I traveled to Japan. They're very popular there, though, so it would have made sense to include it as kind of a snacking fruit in the show. If this were current times, if this were contemporary times, it would have been redrawn to be an apple or something.
0: They don't just, do that anymore. Just like
1: they turn onigiri into cookies.
0: Now, that was, that was a brief period in the, what, late 90s or early 2000s when they were doing that?
1: I don't know. It feels so of the time that they're in this super high tech machine and it's giving them physical printouts of messages and communiques. Yep. (laughs) Because it would never occur to them like, oh, I have a tiny hand computer (laughs) with a touch screen that has all the things on it. Nope. Physical printouts that look like the receipt you would get from an ATM at the bank. neat little tidbit. Tom informed me some time ago that one of my favorite movies has a Gundam reference in it, and it's from this episode. If any of you have seen Satoshi Kon's Tokyo Godfathers, in which a group of three homeless people find an abandoned baby on Christmas Eve, there is a moment in Tokyo Godfathers where one of the characters gets smacked and she says, you hit me! My old man never even hit me! Which Amuro as the originator of the phrase uses in this episode.
0: The second time Bright slaps him.
1: You hit me again!
0: This is actually quite a famous line. It shows up all over the place. And I have read at least three different interviews of people asking Tomino about it and what he meant by it. So we'll talk more about that later. This episode actually gives us a lot of great quotes. Besides the classic, you hit me, even my father never hit me. There's also Kai getting into the gun cannon saying, back into the coffin.
1: I liked that. We don't have time for philosophy.
0: Also, after Frau has tried to get Amuro back into the Gundam and he's initially refused and she's volunteered to pilot it herself, Amuro says to her, I hate to say it, but I guess I am a man, which I feel like would get a lot of use on the internet right now. (laughs) Meme time. For people who are watching this for the first time, you might have caught the name General Revel used by Lieutenant Matilda towards the end of the episode. Pay attention to that. He's going to be important. In this episode, Amaro suffers a full-on post-traumatic stress breakdown. Often in this podcast, when we make statements like that, we ham and we haw a bit and we clarify that we're just speculating, but this is really beyond a shadow of a doubt. If your only experience with post-traumatic stress has been through movies and TV, you may have come away with the impression that it's mostly about having nightmares and vivid flashbacks to the traumatic event. But while that is one of the major categories of symptoms, it's only a small part of the whole package. And many people who experience post-traumatic stress have few or no flashbacks. With the evidence in front of us, we can't really know whether Amro is having flashbacks or nightmares, but this episode is basically a walking tour through other common trauma reactions. So in addition to flashbacks, there are two other general categories of common reactions. Avoidance reactions, which are ways of avoiding reliving the traumatic experience, both by avoiding the people, places, and activities that might remind you of the trauma, as well as cultivating an emotional numbness that protects you from the feelings associated with it. Then on the other hand, you have arousal reactions. These are caused by being constantly keyed up in anticipation of future danger. From a certain perspective, these are both forms of mental self-defense, protecting the self from painful memories while also always being ready to deal with new threats that come up. The avoidance reactions have a lot of overlap with the symptoms of depression, and the arousal reactions have a lot of overlap with symptoms caused by anxiety disorders. This results in some seemingly paradoxical behaviors. A person might lie around all day just staring at the ceiling with no motivation to do anything, but still be too anxious and keyed up to sleep. So let's talk about specific reactions. I'll list some of the common ones, and then we'll play a little ding sound... Yep, that's the one. Every time I mention one that applies to Amara. Common reactions include inability to sleep and exhaustion, trouble eating, lack of appetite, feeling on guard and constantly alert, having trouble concentrating, feeling detached from other people and unconcerned about them, anxious tics like nail biting, avoiding activities connected to the trauma, avoiding thinking about the trauma, irritability and sudden outbursts of anger, distrust and paranoia, becoming withdrawn, feeling isolated, dissociation and feeling like you're not yourself anymore, overwhelming guilt and shame, emotional exhaustion, a feeling like you're just tired of being on edge. All right, now for a bonus round. The U.S. military has identified a variety of risk factors that increase the likelihood that any particular soldier will develop post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll list a few, and let's see if those apply to Amaro too. These include the severity and frequency of the combat stress, not expecting to be in combat, a history of family problems, not being married, having a low rank, not being a regular soldier, being ethnically Hispanic.
1: Hang on, Amaro's Hispanic? Sometimes. What?
0: It's canon that his mother is from North America. Which part of North America has changed a couple of times over the years?
1: Is she Mexican sometimes? Sometimes, yes. Well, okay then. Corporal punishment in the home is still legal in Japan, and although it has been illegal in schools since 1941, attitudes toward it are complex. In a survey this year, cited by the Japan Times and Asahi Shimbun, 57% of adults ages 20 and older support the use of corporal punishment in some circumstances.
0: What is Asahi Shimbun?
1: Asahi Shimbun is one of the local Japanese papers. In a separate survey, 70% of parents admitted to having slapped their children. In recent years, there have been several high-profile cases of students committing suicide after long periods of physical abuse by their sports coaches. At the time of the show, there were also cases of corporal punishment that led to hospitalizations or even deaths.
0: I'm sorry, did you say 70% of Japanese parents admitted to slapping their kids around? Yes. And that was in the 70s, right?
1: No, that was recently, within the past 10 years. Cool. The persistence of corporal punishment stems from two main ideas. The first is that hardship is the gateway to happiness. The second is that the use of corporal punishment to enforce strict and sometimes arbitrary rules instills the unquestioning obedience prized in students and workers in Japanese society. Cool. To clarify a bit, the actions that fall under the umbrella of corporal punishment have changed over time. While it generally includes striking with the hand or an object, it also includes being forced to stand for a long period of time, holding heavy buckets of water, and other physically painful activities that don't necessarily involve being hit.
0: In Japanese martial arts, one common one is to be forced to do rabbit jumps around the gymnasium, often in extreme heat and with no break. People do occasionally die.
1: Which is all to say, while not universally accepted and approved of, in the Japan of the 1970s, corporal punishment was widely practiced and generally considered necessary. So when Amuro says his father never hit him, are we meant to think his father was kind or that his father was negligent? Is this information meant to explain Amuro's lack of discipline?
0: So I'm coming at this from the angle of researching what Tomino actually said, both about this line in particular and about corporal punishment in general. And there's not actually a lot of nuance here. Tomino definitely thinks that corporal punishment is good for kids and necessary. He straight up thinks that kids need some amount of painful physical discipline for their own good. In interviews, he does seem to be trying to say that there's a distinction between abusive violence and kind violence that modern society tends to ignore. I think this point gets lost in the translation a little bit, so I'm not 100% certain that I'm fully understanding what he's saying. But as he's put it, quote, It is a one-sided opinion to assume... Everything is violence. Not using physical discipline seems kind, but that is not always true. At some point in life, human beings have to overcome pain.
1: Disclaimer on our parts, we do not advocate for any sort of physical discipline for children. A lot of recent studies show that it's not necessary or helpful. But we do want to explain the attitudes of the time and why Tomino would have made such a big deal of this scene and what the scene means in the context of Japan at the time of the show.
0: I can't remember any instance, certainly not yet, where we've seen a small child being physically disciplined. It's always teenagers.
1: And frankly, there's a difference between Bright hitting Amuro. Bright's not his parent. Bright's just barely an adult.
0: This is peer pressure.
1: This is bullying? I, <laughs> I mean, again, we're not advocating dealing with disputes physically, but when Amaro says that his father never hit him, he clearly thinks that's a good thing. We are obviously meant to see it in this whole context of Amuro rejecting his responsibilities, Amuro wallowing in his discomfort, and see that, oh, that's why he's such a whiner.
0: <laughs> and frankly, we know that Amuro's dad is negligent. Amro's dad is a neglectful, work-obsessed parent who is never there for his son. So all of this together... Leads us naturally to the conclusion that Amro's father, having never hit Amro, is meant to be interpreted as a sign of bad parenting, not good.
1: There are a couple of moments in this episode where characters refer specifically to being a man. Frabo says something along the lines of, Well, you're a man, aren't you? <laughs> and Amuro, when he finally does go to get in the Gundams, regrettably, I am a man.
0: And Bright, after he hits Amuro, says, show me a man who's grown up properly without ever being hit.
1: But what precisely do all of these characters mean when they reference maleness? Because that concept of masculinity is going to vary across cultures and across time. It might seem strange to harken back to Bushido, which is the samurai code of all things, but it has maintained a lot of its significance in Japanese culture over time, less so in the past generation or so, but at the time of the show, it was being repurposed for modern men.
0: And we want to be clear, Bushido is a thing that changed enormously over the whole course of its conceptual existence. So we're talking specifically about Bushido as it was interpreted in the 1900s and as it was repurposed by people in the 1960s and the 1970s trying to redefine japanese in the post-war period.
1: The Bushido Code explicitly lists eight virtues. The ones most significant for our purposes are heroic courage benevolence and compassion, meaning that they help others at every opportunity, and duty and loyalty, meaning taking responsibility for their actions and the results of those actions, as well as remaining true to those in their care. When Frabo says that Amaro is not a real man, she's talking about these virtues. His courage has failed him. He is actively avoiding an opportunity to help others. And most importantly, he is failing to take responsibility, failing in his duty. When he hopped into the Gundam in episode one, he made a choice. The current situation, with him as their most important pilot, is the result of that choice. People now depend on him because of that choice. It doesn't matter if he didn't know what he was getting himself into. He has a duty, and he's hiding from it. Another way of looking at masculinity that's relevant to these scenes comes from comparative cultural study. There are ways of looking at cultures across certain metrics of what those cultures value. And one is masculinity versus femininity. In these metrics, Japan is a very masculine culture, which is to say they value strength, toughness, they are motivated by being the best. Just consider all shonen manga and anime ever.
0: (laughs) I think there's a song about how somebody wants to be the very best, like no one ever was
1: or history's mightiest disciple, Kenichi, which is all about a young man striving to be the very best martial artist. It's a long-running theme, especially in content written for boys. It's also a culture that values decisiveness, assertiveness, solving conflicts by fighting it out. This is all in contrast to cultures that are described as feminine, which place more value in liking what you do rather than necessarily being the best. And things like nurturing, consensus, humility, modesty, and compromise.
0: Wow, are those terms loaded.
1: Yeah, I mean, we could get into a whole discussion about the very fact of calling a culture masculine for being assertive and feminine for being nurturing is so problematic. <laughs> But we're going to use the terminology that the people who created these metrics use as sort of a useful tool for describing culture.
0: Especially because in this episode, everyone is making such a big deal of manhood as a concept, and it does align pretty well with the way it's used in these metrics.
1: Masculinity and culture reflects a societal preference for achievement, competitiveness, heroism, and material rewards. Ultimately, Amaro is not motivated by caring for others, but by a sense of competition with Shar and a desire to be the best.
0: It might sound a little bit strange to hear us talking about Japanese culture as not being particularly focused on compromise or consensus and to have an emphasis on being the best and achievement and competition, since we often talk about Japan as a very consensus-focused society.
1: The cultural studies people make a distinction between cooperation within a group versus cooperation more broadly. That competitiveness can be embodied in your team wanting to be better than another team or wanting your company to be better than another company. You can be cooperative and collaborative within your in-group and still have that competitiveness and assertiveness outside of it.
0: And the infighting between different Japanese bureaucracies, between different branches of the same large company in Japan is legendary. Even there, where there is the patina of cooperation there's still fierce competition going on.
1: This discussion of cultural values and what motivates people leads very nicely into a wider discussion of what exactly it is that motivates Amaro. what motivation is and how we try to activate it in ourselves and other people.
0: So it's finally time to talk about motivation theory?
1: (laughs) Yes. There are many different psychological models about motivation, and you can think of them almost as layers. At the bottom, we have instinct, followed by the fulfillment of basic needs, food, physical safety, and so on. After that is pursuit of optimal stimulation, physical or mental excitement, but just the right amount, not too much. At the top, we have intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation is the desire to pursue our interests and fulfill our potential, to express our true selves in our own behavior. And extrinsic motivation is the desire to receive tangible rewards, like money, status, and so on. Self-determination theory posits that you can have both, rather than intrinsic or extrinsic crowding out the other, but that we feel the most motivated when we feel we have control of our behavior, when we have autonomy. Starting to see the problem? Instinct only helps Amuro once he's in combat. The desire to survive is strong, but those feelings no longer affect him the rest of the time. Fighting doesn't meet any of his needs, and in his current mental state, optimal excitement would involve never fighting again. He has no intrinsic motivation to fight, fighting is actually counter to his idea of himself. The only extrinsic motivation they can offer, food, just makes him feel guilty. And worst of all, he feels he has no control. Finally, we have self-actualization theory. This was created by Maslow. You've probably heard of his hierarchy of needs. Self-actualization is the true realization of your inner potential. Many self-actualized people ignored their lower order needs to pursue their passions. Think of Amuro working on computers. When Bright tells Amuro, I thought you could be even better than Char, he taps into both the cultural value of achievement and competitiveness and the desire to realize your inner potential. During the talkback, we mentioned intergenerational conflict, both on a wider societal level and also particularly in the context of environmental issues. But having done some research, we could not find a ton of evidence that there was the same sense of an older generation stealing from a younger generation in the 1970s. There were environmental issues that came up, but they tended not to be generational.
0: What was it that defined the battle lines on those environmental issues? The rise
1: of environmental consciousness came from two main things. The first was, did you live in a community that was directly affected? A lot of the big environmental issues had to do with pollution that was very concentrated in specific communities leading to illness in those communities. So you might have a whole town and it would be mostly fishermen or mostly industrial, but everybody in the town would suddenly become very active and organized around the issue that had affected them.
0: Mercury poisoning or the color of the lake changing, things like that.
1: Yes. The second was as economic growth slowed, the explosive growth of the 50s, 60s uh, started to slow down with the oil crises in the 70s. People looked around and realized, oh, we all live in cities now and we have this buying power that we didn't have before and we live very well. But our environment is awful. The air quality was bad. They had lost a massive amount of green space. These areas just weren't pleasant to live in anymore. And there was a sense, particularly when you weren't experiencing that explosive growth, of, well, wait a second. (laughs) Maybe we should take a moment and try to preserve the natural environment so that we can actually enjoy living here.
0: And this connects to Furosato, which we talked about in a previous episode, and the idea of the countryside as the true and natural homeland of the Japanese people. And if the countryside is wrecked and the environment is destroyed, then where is Japan?
1: There was also plenty of student activism in the 70s, but a lot of the student activism focused on issues specific to the university, things like tuition and fees, things like the testing (laughs) that went into getting into university, as well as some political issues, like we talked previously about the Japan-United States treaties that had quite a lot of student interest. But not as much on sort of local social issues, things like the environment or the welfare state that might be associated with some intergenerational conflict.
0: This is something we'll keep an eye on, though. As the economy slows down, as the economy crashes in the 80s, we may see more of this intergenerational conflict developing.
1: You also said Tomino had some specific thoughts about this, even if we can't find wider academic discussion.
0: Yeah, whatever the opinions of the general Japanese society in the 70s might have been, Tomino has specifically and explicitly identified one of the, in his own words, main themes of Gundam as being that adults are the enemy. Short-sighted adults who are only thinking about their immediate pleasure will die soon and aren't thinking about the long term are the enemy of young people.
1: Didn't he also say something along the lines that it's only really idealistic young people who are capable of thinking about the far future and what the far future can and should be?
0: Exactly. In fact, in an unrelated discussion from a different interview when Tomino was talking about his message to his many fans in the world, if you could say anything to them, it would be Whatever you're currently thinking about the world, stop, look to the children. They probably have a better idea than you do.
1: Next week, we'll return with episode 1.10, The Misfortune of Birth, to talk about who gave those children a baby. Like carpet bombing rats in a barrel. When you're char, every day is a masquerade. A tale of two smoldering ruins, blinded by the light. Garmo would do anything for love, but he won't betray Zion. They're so dreamy! This palace needs to be at least three times more villainous. And, if only there were a word for intentionally crashing a plane into a ship, will you be able to survive?
0: make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com.
1: Or come shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling... Amro should have dodged that second slap on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you.
0: The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. My heart.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't wreck our very professional setup.
0: I just, I'm trying not to, okay? Bang.
1: <laughs>
0: i trying to think what you sound like when you laugh like that. Like evil raccoons.
1: T-Rex we were not meant to be. Did you need to write anything for that or are we going to freestyle it?
0: I figured we'd freestyle it. You okay. have some stuff written for it, right? Not really. Wait, that fast?
1: <laughs> we cannot escape the subway.
0: Nope. It is, it is the mighty. It is the worm. <laughs> the people must flow. <laughs> oh, it's true.
1: <laughs> That's a nice place to end it.
0: I agree.